Welcome to the Landmark Theatres Film Club Podcast. On today's episode, producer Alan Elliott discusses the challenges of completing the Aretha Franklin concert documentary Amazing Grace more than 40 years after it was originally shot by director Sidney Pollack. This conversation was recorded on the film's opening night at the Landmark in Los Angeles. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. So I am uh, Professor Marcus Anthony Hunter. I'm the chair over up the street at UCLA in the Department of African American Studies. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. You might also know me as the inventor of hashtag Black Lives Matter, so in case you didn't know that. Uh, I am happy to be here with the producer and NAACP Image Award winner, mm. Alan Elliott. Yes. Yes. Uh, he kindly asked me to come out here and just chop it up a little bit following the film, uh, which I hope you enjoyed. Uh, yeah, right? First, you've seen this probably more times than any person will ever have seen this. Right. And yet, I imagine for you, it was probably something new each time. This is the first time I didn't watch it. Because, uh, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've seen it three times this week. <laughs> I was like in New York, I was in Detroit, uh, I was in Los Angeles, um, and my kids started looking at me like, who are you again? Um, <laughs> so tonight like, was our opening night, and we had a lot of stuff, and thank you for coming on our opening night. It, it, you know, this is actually like why we spent 12 years to get here, so mm -hmm. I'm very appreciative of you all coming. Um, but this is the first time that I've like haven't sat down and watched the movie mm -hmm. when I've shown it. Mm. So uh, I feel like I'm a little disengaged from it, like uh, as usual, because usually I know, I mean, I do know every single right, thing right, about yeah. it, but it, it is a, an immersive experience um, as you guys got, because you're still here, because like, right. except for, you know, those people and they got to go <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, other than that, everybody's here because it, it it's not a movie that I think it plays as well on a, laptop mm -hmm. um, but it plays well with everybody else because it's a it's actually uh, you know when when I thought we were gonna make a concert movie 12 years ago before I'd ever seen footage I figured there'd be a lot of stuff mm -hmm. but where we ended up was this sort of thing where Aretha is uh, the tabula rasa mm -hmm. and we all can sort of watch her and say oh I see where she is because that's where I am, or and and there's a, a a real empathetic thing to it that the movie takes on, that actually plays better with a lot of people. Um, I'm not answering any question. I'm just going off this. Stuff. No, but, that you know. that helps because I I think one thing. Uh, 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 by show of hands, how many people in here are Aretha Franklin fans? I want to. All right, so uh, please uh, treat this as my oral exam. So you check my facts, uh, but. Uh, one thing that strikes me a lot about the film is uh, earlier uh, we get another live project, so we get live at Fillmore West, right? And so it seems clear to me, and sort of like a record executive is like, oh yeah, the best thing I could do with Aretha is just get the actual gift live, like who cares about the material just put her there and you will be wowed just by how incredible she sounds singing Eleanor Rigby. Right, you know, or singing, love the one you with, so on and so forth. And there's this part in the live and Fillmore that I think is connected to this. It's almost like you know she knew she was going to do this, right? In the sort sense a where she says, right, yeah. where yeah. she goes, uh, she does respect at the beginning, right? And as they're about to gear up into the next song, she says. Uh, 
if you would, uh, I just have one request, enjoy yourself and loan me your soul for a couple of minutes and we'll give it back, I promise. And so you hear her ask that in 1971, only for her to set it on fire right. in 1972. Right. And so I wonder if you could say something about the Aretha of Fillmore versus this Aretha in well, Amazing Grace. I mean, the, you know, uh, the Aretha of Fillmore is primarily playing to the post-hippie hippies. You know, it's at the Fillmore. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in San Francisco. Uh, it's a different audience. It's interesting because um, Jerry Jamat, who's the bass player on a lot of the hits mm -hmm. before Chuck Rainey came on, uh, he came to the Pan-African Film Festival, and, um, and I got him in, and, and he said to me, because um, uh, Danny Glover was hosting, and he said, uh, I got to introduce you to Danny Glover. He was working security mm. for at the Fillmore. And I was like, really? And so like then I started asking. I was like, okay, so tell me about the Fillmore. They're like, yeah, there's a lot of drugs and a lot of, you know, a lot of long hairs. And I was like, oh, okay. And that's a different vibe than obviously her going back in with that, you know, audience. Um, in what was Watts, what was South Central Los Angeles, which is now South Los Angeles. Um, this is more of a homecoming. And this, to me, is is because um, you see a you know you see the Rolling Stones there, mm -hmm. and the Rolling Stones are label mates of Aretha's. And uh, uh, you know we've talked about this in the past. You know Atlantic Records is sort of going from this record company that was founded on you know uh, the the early R and B hits of Ray Charles, mm -hmm. Wilson Pickett. They had Stacks. They obviously had Aretha. Aretha was the second coming and really you know the lifeblood of of, a re of Atlantic Records um, but Atlantic is now turning into this um, rock and roll label mm. and Aretha represents uh, you know, Jerry Wexler used to say to me he'd say well she sold a lot of singles but she didn't sell a lot of albums mm. and albums are becoming the thing like two years mm. before um, Woodstock is the big triple album seller for Atlantic Records through a subsidiary. And Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, the Rolling Stones, yes, um, you know, on, on Capitol you have uh, Dark Side of the Moon with um, uh, Pink Floyd, but you have these double album mm -hmm. statements mm -hmm. with long songs, eight and 10 minute songs. And the other day I started doing the thing, I was like, oh yeah, they're eight and 10 minute songs by Aretha. Mm -hmm. They're different eight and 10 minute mm -hmm. songs and it's a double album. Mm -hmm. And you know she's competitive. Mm -hmm. And you know she sees Mick Jagger <laughs> right. out there. Right. And you know she's aware right. that right. he's, you know. Right. And by the way, Billy Preston, who played with her at the Fillmore, is playing with the right. Rolling Stones. Right. And James Cleveland was Billy Preston's mentor. So mm -hmm. there's like a whole bunch of connectivity mm -hmm. towards that. So, um, so it's a different thing. I mean, yeah. the Fillmore. And uh, Jerry Wexler made, or didn't make, Aretha Franklin was a record producer, but um, the Beatles didn't produce their own records. Mm. Jerry Wexler made or gave her that title or, mm. you know, in, in, in whatever, give. She had that title, which was, a, it was not, you know, just something mm. uh, uh, blithely thrown around. And her ability to be in control, mm -hmm. um, because early in her career at Atlantic, they had sort of a tacit agreement that they'd make two or three records and then let her do one. Mm. So she has a live at in Paris record, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which does not have Tom Dowd, mm. Arif Mardin, or Jerry Wexler anywhere near mm. it. Um, and they just sort of let her do it mm -hmm. so that she could, 
have that kind of ownership. Mm. But by the Fillmore, they're having they're 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 interested in the idea of this live record. They're still trying to make hits because mm -hmm. they got Love the One You're With. Mm -hmm. They got Bridge Over Trouble right. Water. They've right. got they're trying to make right. hit records. Mm -hmm. This one, there's no singles. Mm -hmm. So this is like that artistic statement yeah. in an African American way mm -hmm. that's not it, that's too that's true to that in the same way mm -hmm. that say yes or Emerson Lake or Palmer, right. you know, or Genesis right. or any of those people are making. Right, and this makes me think, uh, and then we want to hear from folks here as well to hear, and if you have any questions, I mean, it's very rare that you get to see a film and have the producer here uh, to get your love and maybe questions. Um, we'll take the love. Right. <laughs> the thing I think a lot about is uh, with Amazing Grace in particular, uh, it's not original music in a sense, like none of these songs are brand new songs. Right. But in it being Aretha, she Aretha sizes particular songs. And I'm most taken with, uh, in each time, uh, there are two that stand out the most to me uh, for different reasons. The first one is, uh, for folks who don't know, I'm uh, raised in Philadelphia, so always shout out to Claire Ward and the Ward Singers and the Philadelphia influence on Aretha Franklin. And she sings uh, uh, How I Got Over. I love the screen when it shifts from her in rehearsal yeah. to her seamlessly being right before everybody and how closely knit her rehearsals were to her performance. Right. And I'm, that's very fascinating in me like oh this is like a you know spiritualized performance but it's so rehearsed that she's doing it in real time it makes you think like oh this is the first time she's ever done it yeah and mostly we're watching first takes it looks like as well which is super brilliant and then the second song is I love when Aretha Franklin digs through crates mm -hmm. and she was all up in Carol King's catalog right and when her and James Cleveland take precious Lord from Helia Jackson's hands into you've got a friend and then bring it all the way back around. You know, I I think about that as, uh, is there a soundtrack of this coming for the good people? Because that, it, that would be incredible. Yeah, well, it would be nice. Um, uh, yeah, let's talk business. That'll right. be fun. Let's do that in front of everybody. Um, <laughs> Precious Lord is sort of the genesis of the whole project. I think we've talked about this before, but uh, she does it at the SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference Convention in August of 1968, mm -hmm. which is the de facto funeral for Dr. King. And she does it, you know, very, I mean, she's crying throughout the whole thing. And what I always think is really fascinating is, you know, this is done in Los Angeles in 1972 in sort of a post-Black Panther mm -hmm. Society and um, and it's you know seven years past the riots, and she turns this really thing. I mean, because she was known for her version of "Precious Lord" at King's funeral, which was King's favorite song that she did, and she then turns it on its ear a little bit by taking a big song of the day, which is "You've Got a Friend," mm -hmm. and incorporating that optimism towards it. So the song starts actually with her doing You've Got a Friend mm -hmm. in a mournful kind right, of way, right. and then turning Precious Lord into a mid-tempo thing, and then sort of bringing them together so that there, there's an optimism mm -hmm. to it. And that, to me, is like some subtle politics mm -hmm. that Aretha was involved mm -hmm. with. You know, she is this tabula rasa. We don't know what her 
beliefs are, we can feel them. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thing. I just, I, all right, so there, I got, you got yeah, me. Yeah, That's yeah, my therapy yeah. session for the day. Right. <laughs> you, can actually, you can actually feel her yes. politics right. more than you can hear. She doesn't right. talk about them. Right. Um, and, and that's been part of like the 12-year the journey of making this movie is that nobody, nobody her family, n- nobody could tell me answers to questions that we've had for years and mm. years and years. It's just she led by what she did, and mm-hmm. she didn't want to talk about the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it, it's like a com- uh, she's so composed in the yeah. performance as well. She's that, focused. Yeah, that yeah. it's like you feel all, like clearly her spirit is on fire, yeah. but the vessel itself is so composed, like so controlled, and just thinking about, we think about Aretha a lot about her voice, but this is such a exercise in composure. I mean, you're literally watching people feel the Holy Spirit. You're conjuring it for them. You're putting it on them. And yet you still have to be steady, you know, and be clear headed and remember the words, you know, like all of those things have to all align that I think also just adds the kind of unspoken brilliance that people don't always think about that. I think a visual helps you see. Yeah. Like growing up as a kid, I heard this album all the time. And two things that stood out to me were first her composure, which I just spoke about, and then to the size of the choir. Like, I thought it was Georgia Mass choir style. Right, you right. know, Whitney, preacher's wife. You right. know, we're talking 150 people. But when I saw it, it was just like maybe 35 people. It's like 29. You know what I mean? Well, we were there the other night. We had, uh, we, we did uh, uh, the Los Angeles premiere at, um, at the original church with the original, there's 11 choir members who are still alive. And they sang two songs right. a cappella, and the, because the mics went out. Oh, that's oh. The mics okay. went out, yeah, because oh, oh. like you know everything that could go wrong with this right. movie does go wrong. <laughs> so like you know we're sitting there with the original choir members, and we're ready to do a song, and the mics go out. Oh. And um and then they just start going into it, mm. and eleven people sounded like they were fifty. Yes, they did. And, and it was like. For those of you old enough to remember the movie Cocoon, it was like watching the movie mm. Cocoon. It was like the black Cocoon. Right. It was like 11, right. 11 people watching themselves from 47 years yeah. ago right. and singing to themselves right. and watching themselves yeah. and talking to themselves yes. in this weird way that they were talking to themselves, watching themselves talk to Aretha. Mm-hmm. So it was it was an incredible meta moment. Right. Yeah. 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 They they I mean they're brilliant. Like you go like wow that's all there was was just that. I mean right. they sound so they're so full. Right. You know every the soprano sound like twenty of them. You know the altos sound like forty. So it's just also visually I think you get to see. Uh, there's so many lemons in it, just to think about lemonade. You know, yeah. like Amazing Grace is like this ultimate lemonade that is spun out of all of these possible things. Even when we see Sydney going, no, go that way, go that way. You know, it's yeah. like even the shot part of yeah. it all is that anything that could happen is happening and you have to stay composed amidst all of that and sing and conjure the Holy Ghost and move into the next song and be in queue with James Cleveland. And I had heard a rumor that she knew her dad was coming but perhaps not Clara Ward was going to be in town. And so you have unexpected guests. You know, it's like everything you could think about is happening to Aretha in real time. But as you see visually, you would never know that she did not know that Miss Ward was going to be there tonight. You know, that now she's going to sing and in front of her And she's getting ready mentor. to be a movie star. Right, right, right. I mean, don't right, forget, like, she's, right. 
She's here to be a movie star. Right. She's got an Oscar-nominated director. Right. She's got Warner Brothers. You know, R Reverend Cleveland makes mention of the fact that all these, oh yeah, all right. these yeah. cameras here right. get in on it. Yeah. You know, and right. and right. And she's in on it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's this is because this is after she sings "Funny Girl" uh, at the Oscars, right? Right, right. right. So and she's like, "Babs, here I come!" Right, and, <laughs> and Barbara Streisand's about to go make "The Way We Were right. with Sydney," right, right. And Diana Ross is about to go make um, uh, "Lady Sings the Blues," right, right. So it's like she, it, yeah, she's yeah. looking to get yeah. to that, and, you know. And her right. contract is with the film company and the record company because mm. they, she wanted to be a movie star. Wow. Yeah. When people ask me, like, was, why was Aretha mad at you? I was like, I was seven years old. She's not mad at me. Right. She's mad at Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Like, she wanted to be a movie star. And I'm glad you said that, too, because when I was watching the Oscars, you know, uh, I, I did my own version of live tweeting about it. Uh, and one thing that was really interesting is that during the memoriam, they did not show her in the Blues Brothers. Right. I thought that was so odd. So to your point, right. that even like her her goal was to be a movie star. Yeah. And like she was actually credited in that film. And when they're doing memorial, you would think, what a lovely, you know, thing to include. And she didn't even make the cut for them in that. So right. it was back to that larger longing to be recognized in all areas as the queen. She, yeah. you know, in that way she did not she did not get that favor. You know, there's not a whole lot in her world that you could say, well, oh, she really missed out. Mm -hmm. But she wanted to be a movie star. I mean, mm -hmm. she came out here 2 months, you know, they came out here for rehearsals, but she also did her first uh, guest star on a television show called Room 222. Mm. Uh, and and she plays a preacher, and the whole band is on there. Mm. And it was just a month before mm. they filmed this, so she thought she was on a path. Mm. And so that was the press junket, room two twenty two. Room two twenty two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. Hey, room two twenty two right. was like a big deal right, at the right, time. Right. It was a CBS show or something like that. Uh, anybody? I think it's ABC. Hey, okay, there we go. It's ABC. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> There they go. So major television. Yeah, yes, yeah, right, yeah. But yes, it's Jim yeah. Brooks. It's right. like you know, it's 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 Jim Brooks's first show, right? Right. First show as a showrunner. Is that right? Anyone? No Jim Brooks fans. <laughs> Just gonna sit here and talk about Jim Brooks for a little while. Great career. Some people like Taxi. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Yeah, and so I think this is a point where we take some questions from folks here. Yeah, you're closest. <laughs> Oh, the question was, why, why aren't we here in 1972? Um, that's the short version. Um, and the long version is, is that Sidney Pollack had bad luck. Um, and he wasn't the first director hired. There was a fellow named Jim Signorelli, who was the original director hired. Uh, and he did all the Saturday Night Live um, commercials for the first 35 years. And he had, uh, he had a very special a specific skill set that uh, Jim was famous for because he had done a movie called Superfly. Mm. And Superfly was famous not only for Curtis Mayfield's stuff, but they filmed Curtis Mayfield and the band in the club, but they were actually doing dialogue over mm. that, which, which meant that you had to keep the song going and you had to keep the dialogue going, and it was a very specific, interesting way of doing it. Um, Woodstock had saved... Warner Brothers films, and it had been this giant hit. It made $18 million, which, you know, was like $160 billion in today's world. <laughs> so uh, 
they said, oh, well, we have to like have more record companies with the film company. So they hired a fellow. The guy that Sidney's talking to is a guy named Joe Boyd in the, at the start of the movie. And Joe Boyd had um, uh, Harvard-educated, brilliant guy, one of the producers of the movie because I tracked him down and needed all his help, and he's been terrific. Um, he, he was hired to be the liaison between the record company and the film company. Um, Joe had hired this guy, Jim Signorelli, knew of his skill set. Sidney went out to dinner in true Hollywood fashion with Ted Ashley, who was the head of Warner Brothers, and said, what are you working on? And he said, oh, we're going to go film Aretha Franklin. I want to do it. Oh, okay, well, you should do it. So Joe is told, um, you're going to hire Sidney Pollack. Now, what you see up there is the first time Sidney Pollack meets Joe Boyd. Um, and Sidney's pitching him. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. Then we're going to do that. So the next time you see the movie, it's like, oh, oh, that's what's going on. So Sidney does this. He doesn't do any pre-production. He doesn't go to any of the rehearsals. And you can see the cameramen are running around. I mean, like, you know, it's not, it's not... 2019, it's not 2001 where people wear like all black and you know, then you can't see them and they're like, you know, I mean, this is 1972, you have to have lights, guys are wearing orange satin, you know, shirts, <laughs> and, you know, and giant Panavision across the shirts. And, and, and what you'll see the next time you see the movie is nobody did, had one of these. Okay, which is what you needed in 1972. You had to have one of those, and then you had to hit press, play, and record once you got that, and you went 11 minutes, otherwise you would lose sync. As you guys have seen now, there's guys running around with cameras, and they're turning them on, and they're turning them off, and turning them on, and turning them off, turning them on, turning them off, as if they were iPhones, so they're a little ahead of their time. And the crazy disconnect becomes that um, if they had been hewing to what they should have been doing, they probably would have been more stagnant and just sat there. But what you get is this incredible movement. And you get all these great pictures. I mean, her in silhouette at the very end. With that, I mean, like, what? First time I saw that, I was like, I could not believe it. And how do they get it? Well, they were moving all over the place. But Turning the cameras on, off, on, off. They get back to the editing facility on the following Monday. They have 2,000 pieces of film, and they have no sync points. And so when I got all the elements for the film, it was like the end of Citizen Kane. It was just sort of like they dropped two-inch tapes and Niagara tapes and things. And Sydney had said, oh, we have these interviews. We have interviews with Mick Jagger. We have interviews with Aretha. And I was like, where are they? And like, we kept having these theoretical conversations about what they were, because Sydney never told me. And I didn't know until all of a sudden I'm reading memos. And I see, we have hired Alexander Hamilton, the choir director, as the lip reader. Mm. And I was like, what? What does that mean? And, and where's the work print that he said that he had? Mm. And where's anything mm. that works? So I called Bill Steinkamp, who's um, Sydney's editor, and I said, what happened? He said, oh, nobody told you the story? And I was like, what's the story? He's like, oh, you know, I was only 17, and, you know, my dad was Sydney's editor. And I said, yeah. And he said, and so they did it, and they didn't sink anything. And so they hired the guy to be the lip reader, and they worked for three months, and they only got about an hour or two of stuff, and then they put it away. And 
to that, like, there's, there's things that have gone on in this movie every day, almost every day for 12 years where I go, really? Like, we were in Palm Springs two months ago for the Palm Springs Film Festival, and Donna Ostroff, who was Sydney's... Oh, we got to go? All right, so I got to tell you the story. So Sydney Pollack... Sydney Pollack was told his assistant between movies that he'd like Warner Brothers to send over the film so he could watch it without picture. Is it working? Okay. So between pictures, Sidney would call Warner Brothers and ask them to send over the film so he could watch it in silence. Mm. And that was like the saddest thing of, of, that I'd learned about this. And then, by the way, last week we were doing the 4K version of this, and the guy who uh, runs Deluxe Sound Lab said, we got all the stuff back from Warner Brothers for you to take. He said, but we found 10 extra reels. Mm. I was like, what? Mm. We do. Yeah, I mean, one other thing I'll add, uh, because uh, this is back to your point about the optimism that is in the f underneath, on top of, and within the whole film, is I also think that, you know, divine time controls everything. Yes. So there's probably human reasons behind why the film took however long it was going to take. But it means to me it was always going to come out in this moment, in this time. She would be 77 this year. You know, double sevens is a lucky set. You know, how lucky we were that she was here, how lucky we are that on her 77th birthday, Alan made a way for us to witness why she is and will always be the queen of soul. You know, so that's another reason. Yes, sir. You got interrupted. Can you go on with what you were saying about the next I haven't seen him yet. I was like, I mean, it was it was like last Saturday, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? So yeah. Yeah, I'm hip. I, I should spend some more time with the movie. Any idea why New Temple Missionary Baptist Church was selected as yes. the location as opposed to? First AME or Second Baptist Church? Uh, black church is the oldest in Los Angeles. The reasoning was Reverend Cleveland had his own storefront church. And yeah, yeah. And they didn't have enough room. And um, that's where Reverend Cleveland and Reverend Franklin were close with C.L. Burden, who was the head of uh, New Missionary Baptist. And that's where they did it. That's, you the, know. Yeah, the other quick thing, too, is you notice in the film more specifically uh, the way that the seats were, it's a converted movie theater. Yeah. So the other thing is that it has, you know, like movie theaters do, it has the acoustic ability to not lose the sound, presumably would be one of the other just architectural reasons why the space itself makes a lot of sense. Sure. Yes, yes. What did Aretha think of whatever she saw of Aretha gave us a four, I only met Aretha once for five seconds, and then she gave a quote to the Detroit Free Press. She said, I love the film. <laughs> but here's the thing. Three and a half years ago, or th yeah, three and a half years ago, I'd made a deal with Lionsgate, which she wanted to make a movie, and she wanted to do it. And then she wouldn't sign the contract. And then about three months went past, and her niece, who's a friend of mine, called me and said, I'm going to break a confidence, but don't break a confidence. She's got pancreatic cancer. She's had it for five years. And I was like, oh. And, I, and then the movie takes on a different thing because now I realize I've made a eulogy and I'm asking Aretha Franklin to go on tour. 
you know, pancreatic cancer had killed Sidney Pollack. Uh, you know, I, and so we decided let's not have that. And, and she was so tough. Her last year, she held on. Last couple of years were just really brutal for the family, for herself. Um, and I didn't, we didn't want to have that conversation. Yes, okay, one more. I'll do one more. Yeah, yeah. For all the effort that was made, the countless times of going back and forth, getting all the material and making it as relevant as it was in 1972, and even now in 2019, how do you see us honoring Aretha in the next 20 years through this movie? Or maybe, I don't know, at this point, what do you see? How do you see this movie honoring Aretha, and how do you see greater efforts to continue her legacy, which? So the legacy becomes the question. Marcus was around for it when we were talking about it, because in terms of saying this is why we're here, um, at Aretha's funeral was um, now my very good friend, Dr. Reverend William Barber, who runs the Poor People's Campaign, who Aretha asked to do her last revival, who spoke at her funeral. And he and I have become very close. And he's gone all around the country with us to continue her legacy off the court, as the queen would be. So you know, we went to Detroit, Atlanta. Uh, we went to the Civil Rights Museum in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus with the Sm at the Smithsonian. But all of it is to try to get people aware of Reverend Barber, the Poor People's Campaign, and Repairers of the Breach. And it's really important work um, because it gets to the conversation of morality in society, social justice, racial justice. Um, and I can't help but think, all right, so here we are. All right, so that's why we're here. And, and that's where we're going with it. Um, but I've, I've been told, thank you. Thank you. We're getting out of here. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>